Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. I'm Brittany Rigby. And I'm Zoe Wilkinson. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Damien Francis will be talking to former GPC marketer Diana Jacheco about... The intense pitch for GPC's media account. I believe that agencies should be, you know, an extension of the marketing team. The future of marketing. Marketing will hopefully be start to looked at as a as an investment, not a cost. And going after the supercars name sponsorship. It was very deliberate um, and uh, strategic to go after, you know, the most famous motorsport. But first, the week's topics. Australian brands target Trump. The biggest weekend in TV as football seasons come to a close. And ACM CEO Alan Williams resigns. Just days out from the US presidential election, burger chain Grilled has taken aim not just at Donald Trump, but also at McDonald's, Domino's and KFC. Print and outdoor ads have emerged using real photos of President Trump eating fast food paired with the statement, you are what you eat. Zoe, what do you think is the motivation behind this campaign from Grilled? So this campaign is coming just after Grilled has launched a new uh, burger menu, which is which they say is 100% natural, like 100% natural ingredients with no artificial colours, flavours or preservatives. So this ad obviously is a bit of clever copywriting between uh, Donald Trump eating fast food, hence you are what you eat. Um, there's obviously an implied message there. Um, and I think it's a way for Grilled to make a name for itself. I mean, they've had some bad publicity in the past about its um, staff pay rates and I think, you know, relaunching the burger menu coming out with these ads which are obviously very time sensitive I think that's a way for them to really uh, create some conversation and attract some attention from people who are probably in their target market I reckon it would be you know millennials peoples in their 20s and 30s um, who are naturally more progressive and probably see the humor in this ad yeah, it's an interesting one because um, I I think it was actually when we were watching um, the AFL final on the weekend possibly, but the Sportsbet Trump ads came on. So Sportsbet obviously is allowing people to bet on things like the debate and the election um, and they're using, you know, they've just run that recent cartoon Trump ad and in the past they've run some print ads that tapped the election as well. Um, And what was interesting, I think, is I was, you know, in a house with my housemates who were all in what I would say is Grilled's demographic. And there's a really interesting visceral reaction that comes from people when Trump is being used. And I think it's because we're in this place now where the election in the US has become so farcical. It's now, you know, just part of the part of ad fodder I suppose and while for us that's you know amusing I'm sure it's a little bit less amusing if the results of this election impact you personally do you think so that a brand's kind of choosing this I'm not even sure it's edgy because I don't think it really is but you know these kind of political messages but using them in a humorous way do you think there's a possibility there that it can backfire and actually put people off I mean we are in Australia, so I think that does – it's a different context. So for us, you can look over to the US and think, thank God I don't live there. Thank God I'm not living through this pandemic there. Thank God I'm not, like, voting in this election. Although, actually, I have had no- a number of conversations in which people wish they could vote in that election. But I think for brands sort of taking on Trump in their ads in Australia, it's a bit more of just trying to be topical and edgy and, you know, taking on this sort of cultural moment. I'm actually surprised we haven't seen more brands jump on board it, to be honest. Um, Because if you look at the US, I mean, brands' Twitter accounts come to mind as quite a strong marketing tactic that's used in the US that we don't really see here, where brands you wouldn't expect have make sassy comments about 
American politics and about President Trump that I think expose where that brand aligns with the political parties and that's you know quite a statement for them to make I because you you might be isolating part of your consumer base but here in Australia I think taking on the politics of elsewhere it's more of something that's just fun and a relief and so I think grilled and sports better just having a bit of fun and I don't know whether necessarily over here it will isolate as many people. Yeah, I think it's probably worth pointing out as well. Um, as you said, you know, these these are brands that know their demographic. Obviously, Sportsbet is a bit of a different example to Grilled because Sportsbet has got that consumer base. Sportsbet are known for being quite controversial, whereas, you know, Grilled less so. But, yeah, I just think it's an interesting, maybe unnecessary risk to kind of walk that line. But as you said, it depends a lot on how well you know your demographic. Um, also staying in Adland this week, we saw a Christmas campaign come from Target. Obviously, we had a couple kickers off last week and they're st- slowly coming through now. It, what I thought was particularly interesting about this one, though, is that as we were discussing last week, we thought it was quite unlikely we were going to see any brand not mention COVID this year. But Target have just done have done just that. Not a single hint of COVID in this campaign. What did you think? I really liked this ad. I, it felt very John Lewisy to me. I mean, obviously not to the scale that John Lewis goes to every year, but the Australia version of John Lewis that we've kind of seen over the years with people really trying to capture the magic and capture a Christmassy story. So for those who haven't seen it, it's two parents going to extreme lengths to get the perfect Christmas together. So you can see them trying to catch a turkey, which I'm not going to lie was a little bit off-putting for me. Um, they're cutting down their own Christmas tree. They're sewing their own toys. I think it's a really cute ad. And, yeah, there is no mention of COVID, but I don't know. Like, it still works for me. Like, I don't feel disconnected from the brand, if anything. Like, it's a beautiful film, and I think, in a way, people will want to see that in their Christmas ads. They'll want the entertainment and the attraction of something that's you know aesthetically pleasing so I don't know whether it will turn many customers off and I think it's also quite a different um, ad from Target that we've seen in the past and so I'm interested to see especially seeing as a number of Target stores have closed this year or been turned into Kmart stores it's quite a strong investment in their brand which interests me. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about that. It's a really good point. It has not been a good year for Target and next year is not looking to be a good year for Target either. Um, I don't think it, uh, you know, in any way bothered me that they didn't mention COVID. If you're trying to differentiate yourself as a brand, the easiest way to do that this year is probably to not mention COVID. Um, Good point there, though, about it being very different from last year. I can still very vividly remember Target's last Christmas campaign because it was so inclusive you know there was such a wide variety of casting in it which I thought was just such a nice thing for a brand to just openly do without pointing to I suppose like you know it literally just felt like these are just the people we cast as opposed to we went out there to try and give you a really diverse commercial um what I would say though is last year's ads to me felt very similar to the supermarket ads they were very much you know everyone's around for Christmas this one as you said feels quite different it feels very kind of cinematic and there's a clear storyline running through it so I can see this one being really well received and I actually yeah quite liked it even though it was a little bit different for Target. Next football finals kickoff rating success for the free-to-airs. Over the weekend, sports fans were treated to the AFL Grand Final on Saturday, which aired on 7, and the NRL Grand Final on Sunday, airing on 9. For the AFL, it was the first Grand Final to take place at night after years of pressure from 7 for the match to take place during prime time as opposed to the traditional afternoon time slot. 
it was also the first AFL grand final with a halftime musical performance. And while the changes were poorly received by AFL fans, it achieved the highest rating since 2016 with 2.979 million Metro viewers and 3.8 million nationally. Um, Zoe, I did actually, I know you're our resident AFL reporter, but I did actually watch it. Um, It was quite a good final, actually, which, you know, impressed me quite a lot. Although I believe I had a lot of friends who were watching at the pub and uh, agreed less with me that it was a good result. It's interesting. Obviously, there's been a lot of delays to the season this year. We've obviously seen a shortened season this year. This has been impacting all sport, not just AFL. Um, They also played in uh, Queensland this year because of the COVID bubble. What what was your opinion on the final and especially, I guess, it being a night final? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely of the crowd of people who did not appreciate it taking place at night. I mean, I'm used to an AFL grand final day where I get really excited in the morning and then turn the match on in the afternoon. I mean, I was happy with the result, but that is neither here nor there for this podcast. Um, I mean, I have to give props to the AFL, to the team at the Gabba, to the team at Seven for putting together like the show that they put on for the grand final. I mean, they had really good pre-match entertainment in my opinion, but I guess that depends on your musical taste. They also had quite a spectacular halftime performance with Shepard and the fireworks and the light show. So I have to give them props for pulling that together because they would have had less time than they normally do given how late the decision to move the grand final to the Gabba came in the season. However, I mean, my critique on the halftime musical performance is that it really distracted me from the game. Like, I kind of lost my momentum and interest into the game. I mean, I don't, I'm not a supporter of either team, but I watch it every year. And it was a much more exciting grand final than we had seen last year. And so there was a lot more viewer and crowd momentum behind the actual gameplay. And so I found the halftime thing a bit distracting and I also I mean we talk about it a lot in advertising I guess now we're talking about it in broadcasting as well about pursuing an Australian Super Bowl and clearly this was the effort to pursue an Australian Super Bowl TV event but like I don't know like why why do we need it yeah, good question. I don't know. It's probably worth taking up with the broadcasters, that one, because I suspect they'll be the people who are pushing for it. Um, it's interesting. I can remember last year you and I were both watching from separate pubs and texting each other, and you're right, last year's final was not a great final. This year, two Melbourne teams, and it was right down to the wire. Um, that's kind of reflected in the viewership as well. 1.5 million Melbourne Melbournians watched it from home. Which brings up another interesting point. Obviously, in Melbourne, they couldn't be watching it from the pub. We weren't watching it from the pub, but we did have, I did have friends who were. I think it's really interesting that you're seeing mammoth figures, which Seven are obviously going to use to reflect what they sell for next year. These figures, though, so impacted by all the, you know, specifications. People, and you've heard this said time and time again this year, people are crying out for live sport. Live sport has not been what it usually is this year. Another A night game, obviously, as well. Plus, you couldn't watch it at the pub in the main state that's watching this sport. So I think using these figures, you know, we've talked a lot this year about broadcast figures having a little asterisk next to them for 2020. It would be shocking to me if these figures are the same next year. Um, but I think for seven, you know, you couldn't really expect a better result than this. And I do, I can definitely see them using this as a push for more night games next year. And I can see them using this as a push for, as you said, turning this into Australia's Super Bowl going forward. So the next day after the AFL final, the NRL grand final drew just over 2 million Metro viewers to nine. Um, the NRL historically does not rate as well as the AFL. Not really sure why that is. It just doesn't. Um, and the NRL uh, season this year had a similar problem to the AFL season. You know, it was shortened. There were obviously a lot of travel restrictions. The NRL game 
was also a really good game. Watched that one too. A bit of a sad outcome, but it was a very enjoyable game. There was a lot of back and forth, particularly in the last 20 minutes. So I'm not really surprised to see how well that did. But I think what we're going to see off the back of this, and we were actually talking about this while we were watching it, is State of Origin doing incredibly well this year. You know, they're obviously much later than it usually does. Usually it would be well done and dusted by now. But it's a bit of an interesting one because even though it's New South Wales and Queensland, it's still one of those things that quite a lot of people who maybe aren't NRL fans watch, maybe aren't even, you know, New South Wales or Queensland supporters watch. So I can imagine that result for nine will be exactly what they were hoping for going into the state of origin from here. Yeah, and it's important to mention that the first state of origin game will be taking place in Adelaide, which is the first time it's being done so. And I think that'll probably change the timing a little bit in terms of when it goes to air. But, um, I mean, the state of origin is obviously like a mammoth event for nine and it, or, and nine and the state of origin are both promoting it as Australia's most watched sporting event. So, they're probably, and as it is happening later in the year than it normally would be, I think they're definitely gearing up for some high ratings figures. Yeah, so first game taking place in Adelaide, second game in Sydney, and the third game will take place in Brisbane for the state of origin. Also, nine pushing for next year a state of originality, which they launched at their upfronts this year, which is an advertising competition for next year. So it's within their interest that this year performs really well. Um, so yeah, I think all eyes will be on that one. And as you said, it probably will impact the timing slightly, which nine will be pretty happy with. And just lastly, before we wrap on sport, there was an announcement kind of snuck out during Foxtel's upfronts last week that they are going to start offering a free version of their sports streaming platform KO. This is a little bit of a backstep for Foxtel, who obviously is a subscription TV business. And they have said that not all sports available on KO will be available as part of the free version. They've also said it won't have the same features that a paid KO subscription will have. This comes off the back of earlier this year. There was some real hits to KO subscribers, which is a monthly subscription service. So you can log in or log out at any time of that subscription. Um, So earlier this year when there was no live sport, they saw those numbers absolutely plummet. But then at their reporting mid-year, they were able to report the highest figure KOs had to date. Um, What Patrick Delaney, the CEO of Foxtel, kind of said during that upfront was that he hopes this will keep those subscribers who maybe aren't interested in a sport that's happening right now, he hopes it'll kind of keep them inside the KO loop. So he's hoping that you might not want to be paying for your KO subscription right now because, you know, maybe the NRL's just finished, maybe the AFL's just finished. But if you're still using a free version of it, you're more likely to fork out more money when that season comes around again. Britt, I can see the point and I can see what he's trying to do with this. I think what worries me a little bit for Foxtel is if you're offering a subscription service that you're expecting people to pay for, then offering a free version of that subscription to me just seems to kind of take some of the shine off that product. Look, I think Foxtel and KO have to be really strategic and pointed about how they go about this. And I don't think we quite know yet the the extent of the free service or what it will and won't include. It it can't be, you know, a Spotify and Spotify premium kind of a difference where, you know, for example, you get the same product essentially, but you don't get ads. Um, it needs to be that you get enough of a difference paying for KO, which is quite a hefty subscription as well. You know, when we're talking about a streaming market that has, you know, eight, nine, ten dollar subscriptions a month, from memory, KO is about $25 a month. So it has to offer value to people that are paying that amount. At the same time, offering some kind of taste could attract new subscribers. But I think the important thing will be whether or not they're thinking about the freemium model as a way to convert those people interested in the freemium service into paying subscribers or whether or not they're viewing those audiences as completely different things, i.e. people who would never sign up to KO, don't have that $25 a month to spend, but, you know, might still then 
gain loyalty towards the Foxtel and KO brand. So I'll definitely be interested to keep an eye on it simply because I think you're right that it's a fine balance to strike between offering enough value to make it worth their while, but not too much so as to turn off paying subscribers. Next up, Alan Williams leaves ACM after 30 years. We got a tip this week that Australian Community Media, the regional publisher who owns the former Fairfax titles, which was sold by Nine to former domain boss Anthony Catalano, was losing its longtime CEO, Alan Williams. After 30 years, Williams is stepping down from the company. His last day will be in December. Britt, you wrote this one up based on an email that Anthony Catalano sent to staff. What was the feeling you got from reading that email? I think Anthony's sentiment was really twofold and unsurprisingly so. There was a real sense of disappointment and a real sense that they were losing a big asset. I don't think he downplayed that at all. But then also a sense of, you know, respecting and paying tribute to what's been, you know, undoubtedly a really long and respectable career He's someone who, you know, has done a lot for that company and I think Catalano spent a lot of time really setting out, you know, his career, where he's been, what he's done and, you know, what ACM has looked like under him really and in all of its different forms and iterations, you know, he's stuck through a lot of change over that period. So I think, you know, he knows that those are big shoes to fill. I don't think that they have anyone lined up yet or even close to being lined up. I think from from the email, it's definitely a recruitment process that's only just beginning and in its very early stages. So it'll be interesting to see who else they get to replace him. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, developments at ACM in the last, say, couple of months. Obviously, they were hit quite hard at the beginning of COVID. They paused and closed a number of titles. They um, closed some of their printing plants. They've just signed a $100 million partnership with IVE Group. So IVE Group earlier this year were hit pretty hard when Coles decided that they would no longer be sending catalogs to homes. Um, but now they've got this deal with ACM, which will see them print and distribute some of the titles. Also, we saw earlier this year ACM announce a $100 million. Interesting that both of them are worth the same amount. Don't know if that's anything, just something I noticed today. Um, a $100 million joint venture with realestateview.com.au, which ended ACM's relationship with Domain. That's obviously been on the cards for a very long time, despite Anthony Catalano repeatedly telling us that he is not interested in Domain 2.0. Anyone who's been around for long enough will know that that's how he set Domain up in the first place. Um We've also seen them launch a couple of titles this year targeting kind of areas that they weren't formally in. So I th- I kind of agree with you in that it seems like this was just a decision that came. Obviously, Alan has been through a lot at ACM. If at any point they wanted rid of him, they could have done that up until this point. So this seems like, you know, 30 years is as good a time as any to leave a company. Um, but what I think will be really interesting is we'll be able to tell a lot from where they go with the new hire. I think there's a clear strategy at play here from Anthony Catalano. There's a clear strategy at play here from ACM. So what I'm expecting is we'll see somebody very digital focused. We'll see somebody very, um, you know, strategically focused. It will be really interesting if we see someone from a real estate background, but that feels maybe a tad too on the nose. Um, But, yeah, I think once that announcement does come, it's definitely one that lots of people are going to be watching because, you know, there's a couple of pieces missing from this puzzle. But once it all falls into place, I'm sure we'll have a pretty clear view of what Catalano is planning to do next. Next up, Damien talks to Diana DiCecco. Joining me now on the Mumbrella cast is marketer Diana DiCecco. Thank you so much for joining me, Diana. Thank you for having me. Now, it'd be good to start off with the fact that you've worked for some pretty big brands in Australia in marketing. You've worked for Seven, for Goodyear. You're 
best known probably for, for the work at GPC, which obviously includes uh, the very well-known brand Repco. Uh, but at the moment, you're not working at GPC. Can you tell me a little bit about what's happening at the moment and what the outlook's like and, and where you are right now? Sure. Uh, look, yeah, I've been really fortunate uh, to work for and be trusted with some really big brands in my career and most recently at uh, GPC APAC. Um, look, what, most of my work there revolved around, um, you know, bringing the marketing department into the 21st century. Um, I took over a very outdated set of operations that focused mostly on just TV and catalogue. Um, there were a couple of components to the work that um, that I did there. Uh, there was the strategic component, which overlooked a 17-brand portfolio, but most of the work was for Repco, which, as everyone would know, is the most consumer-facing. There was also, I suppose, a huge component of the go-to-market strategy um, and certainly the most interesting and complex um, and, you know, that included sort of showcasing that the brand was um, capable of a lot more. Um, you know, we introduced search, Google shopping, social content, social ads, programmatic, radio out of home, um, and obviously continued with, with TV. Um, the Repco brand relaunch there was probably the biggest piece of work. Um, and in addition to that, we um, partnered that with a lot of brand health measurements, uh, relaunched the loyalty program, developed PR program, um, and cemented um, by those uh, motorsport associations and integrations that everyone's probably really familiar with now with Shell V-Power and, and, uh, and supercars. The, um, I suppose the most, uh, the, the most complex part of that entire piece of work there was um, the business transformation that the, the organisation went on as a whole um, and that sort of included uh, department restructure, um, improved operations and certainly developing an entire new department um, that was scalable for the future and um, sort of formed it into pillars that were defined by the company's desired outputs. Now, as I sort of mentioned, you're not there anymore. What's the what's the outlook for you at the moment? What are you doing with yourself? Uh, what, what's your plan? It's an interesting time uh, to be doing something different. It certainly is. Um, look, the, the, my outlook is a really optimistic one, um, and there are a lot of observations that come with the market at the moment. So obviously most would know it's a very soft employment market. Yes, I'm looking for new opportunities, um, but I do think that as businesses start to recover from, um, you know, the state that they're in and every organisation is, is in a very different state, um, marketing will hopefully be start to looked at as, a, as an investment and not a cost, and I think that'll start to happen from next year. Um, at the moment, I'm using my time really wisely and uh, certainly have, I've uh, thrown myself into, into education. Um, I'm completing the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and, um, and a number of other courses. I think uh, I enrolled in, in, uh, in about six in a week, uh, which was perhaps a little ambitious, um, but I'm aiming to get to the other side of uh, all of this as a, you know, a better version of me. Um, and my theory is you can never be too educated. Now, you were top of the pops, essentially, in marketing at GPC. You, you were the general manager of, of marketing, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, as you mentioned, 17 brands under that um, umbrella. Repco, obviously, the, the big one. I remember when I was a kid, many, many years slash decades ago, really riding Repco bikes, and this was such a, you oh, know. come on, Damo, you're not that old. <laughs> you are not that old enough to have a Repco bike, surely. I, I actually was. I actually <laughs> was. My father may not have bought me the newest of new bikes, to be fair, but um, I, I'm on the uh, the not-so-pleasant side of, of, of 30, to be fair, so there's, there's enough time in there. Um, you're a spring chicken. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. <laughs> but in terms of working with a brand like Repco, where it's got this history to it uh, and it's got this resonance within the Australian community and, and culture. How hard is that to market a brand like that and try new things when there is so much history attached to it? You're dead right. Um, you know, the, you know, Repco in particular has produced many things over the years. You know, in addition to bikes, it originally started as an engine manufacturer. 
Um, and, you know, bikes were certainly in the mix too. Um, look, there are so many pros and cons to having a legacy brand. Um, and the important part is how to market that brand with future iterations. You know, the positive part is there's that, you know, very raw nostalgia and trust that comes with a heritage brand, which is good. Um, but when that audience then grows up, do they have the same needs as they once did? Um, is there a new audience for the brand and what are their needs? Um, my opinion is that brands need to really evolve and stay very relevant um, to a, a target audience, whether it's the current one, a previous one, or whatever they decide it is. Um, that's really where the, the aim is of, uh, of heritage brands. And I would argue that over the last 12 months, we've probably seen more of Repco, GPC and yourself, certainly within the, the trade media than, than we have before, uh, particularly in terms of the supercar sponsorships uh, with uh, not just the sport itself, uh, but uh, with the Penske team as well, but also then the announcement that uh, the naming rights partner for Bathurst 1000 was going to be Repco as well. Uh, tell me a, a bit about that really big push into motorsport. What was the thinking behind that? And, and also, I guess, how did COVID affect all of that? Because clearly sports sort of came to a grinding halt quite uh, quite quickly earlier this yeah. year. <laughs> Look, yes, the um, the Bathurst 1000 uh, was announced and in addition to that we actually announced the supercars naming rights and both of those starting in 2021. Um, the decision to go down that path was after a two-year sort of program with Shell V Power Racing Team and with supercars as the official automotive retailer. Um, it's I suppose it's not too hard to assume that people who love cars might also love motorsport and you know the bow isn't isn't too long um but we certainly cemented some of those thoughts with customer research and it's with that data that we decided to take um our involvement in motorsport even more seriously um and the imperative there obviously just being to to better reach the enthusiast um automotive market um, there's still, I think the, the supercars team did an amazing job, especially, especially at the beginning of COVID when all racing was off. I'll never forget that day being, um, at home, ready to go to the Grand Prix back in March. And, um, the gates had been open, I think on the Thursday and I had a bunch of meetings actually scheduled for Friday and we were sort of all waiting with bated breath, watching the news and waiting to see what would happen. And then the call came, there would be no race. Um, I believe supercars did an amazing job of pivoting and bringing in that E-Series, which was pretty much the only sport that was available because all of a sudden NRL, AFL and every other sport was on hold as well. And I think it captured um, motoring enthusiasts, motorsport enthusiasts, but absolutely a whole bunch of new enthusiasts who had nothing else to entertain themselves with. Um, there is definitely still a great amount of value um, in in supercars. I think as a series, it's the only major motorsport that the country has. Um, and on a personal level, I think that it's imperative that uh, that it stays alive. Um, whilst they've had you know a lot of struggles with all the manufacturers playing a uh, you know a, a different game, um, I think I think the series will continue to evolve um, and find new and interesting ways um, to, to be a series in future. And, you know, who knows what that might look like. I think it's a really exciting space. It was something I was going to ask you about, uh, actually. Of course, Supercars has had its challenges over the last uh, few years, particularly with the withdrawal of Holden uh, as a brand. That's a, a really big challenge for them. And uh, what did that do to, to the negotiations with, uh, with Bathurst, with Supercars, um, did it change anything in, in the dynamics of the talks you were having with them at the time or was that sort of cast to one side? Look, it definitely played a role and I think that the um, the broadcasting rights um, that have been recently announced um, played a huge role in, you know, what, what everyone believes will be um, the series in those following years. Um, supercars played um, a pivotal role and a really smart and ethical way of looking at the series in 2020 of how they would look at charging partners um, and it was very much based on what they thought they could deliver um, and at least it was it was data driven 
Um, so I really, I, I really commend them um, for having that type of approach rather than just thinking that, um, you know, the dollars need to be served um, because this is a partnership, that they were pivotal in making sure that a certain level of, you know, deliverables would be met. Um, and I think that depending on what the series looks like in 21 um, and down the track, um, you know, that could change. Um, it really depends on how much racing is permitted um, and where we find ourselves. You know, there's there's every possibility, I hope it doesn't happen, that we have, you know, another another situation like this next year or the year after. Um, who says there isn't a, a COVID-20 um, or a 21? Um, so, you know, an ability to um, factor change in to how a series and its partners then behave um, is something that uh, that they've done really well. Please don't say a COVID-21. No, no one needs that. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> don't. But let's take again, that off the table ball. right now. <laughs> Uh, so did you get a great deal? Did, did you did you completely rework uh, what it was worth? Did you walk away with a, an amazing uh, marketing spend there in, in the circumstances or, or can you not say? Of course I can't say. Um, but, uh, look, at the end of the day it was really good value. So they haven't before partnered the Bathurst 1000 with the series naming rights. So I think that on its own is a huge win. Um, and what it will do for the Repco brand uh, in future is really cement their position in in motorsport. So I think it's a it's a win win situation for supercars in particular. Having a longer term, really relevant brand um, to be associated with is a big positive as well. Um, and that really came through with um, with the announcement a few weeks ago. And you know, supporters actually, uh, you know, realising how much more there was to Repco and understanding that the synergy was was right and good um, and that it will be a, a, a wonderful partnership moving forward. And just finally on the, the Repco front anyway, the, those who say that potentially you're preaching to the converted people who know motorsports or motoring, know Repco, know what it stands for and what it does, what was the idea behind ensuring that you're connecting with those people who potentially already knew about the Repco name? And was there an idea of trying to get in front of new customers or was this not part of that strategy at that stage? Look, people do know Repco. Um, A lot of them know the Repco of 20 years ago, however, Um, and the brand relaunch of 2018 was our symbolic of our first steps forward to actually re-engage with um, with you know the segments that we were were looking to go after, what we did find with um, you know a, a heap of consumer research was that um, perhaps the uh, you know the pillars and key messages of and our values weren't really translating and being decoded in the right way. Um, so that that actually involves you know reworking your entire strategy and making sure that. Um, in order to go after the segment that you want to be famous with, um, you actually need to change the way that you go to market. You need to change the way you look and feel. You need to change their perception. Um, you know, the, the, in the customer's mind is the only place that the brand really exists. Um, and internal um, internal opinions about what the brand is and what it stands for can be very different to what the customer thinks. Um, so this um, you know, a propensity to be more customer-centric and better understand customers' needs and what they think um, was really prevalent over the last couple of years. Um, but it was it was very deliberate um, and uh, strategic to go after, you know, the most famous motorsport, um, you know, asset uh, in the country. Um, and that really is a, a trans-Tasman piece, to be completely honest. Now, of course, a large part of what you do marketing-wise is helped slash led by the agencies you're working with and GPC uh, and yourself made a, a few headlines when you switched the media account uh, uh, earlier in, in the year and that went uh, to Initiative in Melbourne. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Uh, you've talked about it at the, at the Automotive Marketing Virtual Summit uh, as well, but if you don't mind just going through a bit of the thinking there, why it was the right time, what you aim to achieve out of it and how the process went. Of course. Um, it was really, you know, intense. Um, we had a few pauses within our business that caused 
the entire process to probably take a little longer than I would have liked it to. Um, but the key driver there was to get it done and hurry up. <laughs> um, there was, um, you know, the process was was pretty standard. There was an RFI, um, an RFP, there was a pitch process. Um, and at that point, we ended up with three very capable agencies, which doesn't happen very often. Often you can get to that last round and sort of say, you know, do your scoring matrix and say, yep, we have a winner. Um, and whilst we did have a winner, there was just this innate um, you know, desire to make sure that we had asked all the questions that we wanted to and we wanted to do that due diligence. So we had a, a fourth round of Q&A just to help cement everyone's thoughts, you know, help make that that final decision. Um, and importantly, it was a decision for now and for the future. So um, it was um, a very uh, comprehensive process um, and, yeah, we were, we were del- delighted when we got to the end of it. Why was that the ideal time to put it out to pitch? Were, were there certain challenges you were trying to overcome? Was it just time for a fresh start? Uh, what was the reasoning behind that? We took it to pitch because the contract was 10 years out of date. Um, so, you know, that in conjunction with not being serviced appropriately made it all feel really hard and very difficult. Um, And my belief is that an agency relationship shouldn't be like that. You know, I believe that agencies should be, you know, an extension of the marketing team. You know, there's that whole concept of work family um, working together um, and just getting things done that I think agencies should facilitate and make easier, not harder. So the, the decision was very deliberate um, and the the reasoning was around um, making sure that we had the right partner for the future. Um, the I suppose the 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 decision part was really the most important part. So we use um, I like to use a scoring matrix, and and that way I get to take any biases out of um, out of the run, um, and any personal opinions. Um, are very quickly, you know, eradicated. And it's it's a very constructive way to make big decisions, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, the reason why it was right um, with initiative is that I'm sure lots of listeners have, have worked with initiative before, but when you engage with them, you realise that there is just something, there's just something special about them. There's something special about um, the way they operate. Um, I like to call it an X factor. Um, and, you know, Mal and Sarah um, and the team over there have this really special way of presenting themselves. Um, it's professional. It's forward thinking. Um, their methodologies are backed by insights and the strategy is really overt. Um, you know, they've ultimately got, they've got the smarts and this terrific team of individuals who live and breathe this very genuine culture and it's just it's win. It's a winning approach, and and you know that you're in good hands when you land. You mentioned, of course, four stages of of the process within the pitch. It's been talked about until the cows come home, but it's <laughs> something that I do want to ask you. You now clearly don't work with GPC anymore, but if you could reinvent that pitch process, is there anything you would change with it, or do you think that was exactly what? Uh, should have happened and, and, it, and it ran well that's actually my pitch process so yeah I, I think it's so it's amazing then and flawless. <laughs> it's 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 perfect <laughs> um look I think any any um any process is is one of continual you know refinement um so you know there are there were aspects of the entire process that I would have changed more to do with the timings um, I, I like to get those things done within, you know, about four months. This took this took a bit longer. Um, and when I think of when I think of, you know, part of that was actually during during COVID, and part of it wasn't. Um, but I do often reflect on if it was a COVID scenario, how would it change? And to be honest with you, um, the major tasks are exactly the same. It's just that all of the communication would have need to have been virtual. Um, I'm really mindful of taking. Um, not taking too many agencies to pitch. I'm really respectful of the fact that it takes a lot of effort um, and time from agency side to prepare um, and bring their A game and every agency wants to bring their A game. 
Um, and yeah, I sort of limit that to three. I think that's a, that's a robust number. If you can't get down to three, then, you know, go and revisit. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I, I, it's a pretty robust process and, um, the scoring matrix is the part that really makes it. I'd like to just finish off on a a couple of questions about the automotive marketing industry in particular, uh, especially when we consider the types of marketing that we get within automotive, it's long been seen as a sector which tends to throw out the same old, same old ads, whether they're sports cars or dog and family in car cramming into SUV, look how much it fits, or insurance is now the next best friend of standard father in the suburbs or something like that. What are your thoughts on creativity and, I guess, risk-taking in the automotive marketing sector? Is it a bit dull? Are we seeing change? What needs to be done here, if anything? Great question. It is dull. I think that um, I would I would love to think that proper marketers and creatives, you know, land with these ideas because of a great insight from data. And consumer insights. You know what those insights are. Uh, I don't know, unfortunately. When we look at some of the very typical, especially in manufacturing, it's um, it's it, it is a very typical um, a typical thing to see. Um, no doubt, there's that tug of um, and a desire to uh, to appeal to the emotive and function um, in in those types of ads. Um, but absolutely, God, I'd love to see something different. You know, the decision of buying a car is a really big one. It doesn't matter whether you're buying a value budget vehicle or something from a more premium category. Um, you know, vehicle manufacturers love to speak to their audience and make themselves relatable. Um, the only thing that I see that's super relatable is, you know, where you see the dog, um, that's definitely, you know, super relatable. 61% of households, you know, own a pet and most of them are dogs. Um, but, you know, there's this ability to, to be relatable. Um, and and given, given that families are not a typical family um, anymore, uh, I'd love to see, you know, the vehicle, um, the industry of automotive do something a little different. Why, why hasn't it? What, what's the barriers there to trying something new or approaching marketing in a different way? I suppose it's. Um, I think there's a. The, the, there could be. I think there's two two elements to this. There is a, a certain safety um, in doing it the same way or doing it in a similar way to history. Um, and then I think you also have you know internal stakeholders that perhaps believe uh, things should be done in a serv- in in a certain way um, without seeing you know the the. Um, the the DNA the brand DNA for some of those brands and what they really stand for it's difficult to to say um, but no doubt there are some I, I'd I'd put it to the creative agencies of some of those brands to um to find an alternative way to to cut through because it does feel like clutter you often see some of those ads and unless you're in the market for buying a car and even then sometimes it's just you know that barrier goes up very quickly of of not interested. Um, so who knows? Maybe maybe the car manufacturers will get really brave next year um, and uh, find an alternative way to to get their message to market. And one final question: I'm going to end on some statistics because who doesn't love statistics? I love statistics. Everyone I'm three, loves three percent nerd over here. So please do. I might need you to be a bit more nerd for for this question. Okay. I'm actually going to read these statistics out because I know I'll get this wrong if I don't. Uh, So, according to some Zenith research, automotive advertising expenditure is forecast to shrink by 21% in 2020 across 10 key markets. Uh, However, ad spend is poised to outperform the market in both 2021 and 22, with a 10.5% growth in 21 and 11.4% growth in 22. Initially, the large decline in 20 will make the comparison easier in 21, so it says... This sort of goes hand in hand with what we heard from Sir Martin Sorrell, actually, in the special edition Mumbrella cast we recently put out, where he said the recovery will look somewhat like a reverse square root, where it will dip sharply, rise sharply, but not to the same level as it was before, and then sort of plateau, 
question to you, Diana, would be, do you agree with this? Do you see recovery in the auto industry? How do you think this is all going to play out over the next six to 12 months? I did really enjoy that uh, Sir Martin opposed the uh, Nike swish model in favour of the reverse square, square route. Very insightful. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that uh, that special edition on the, on the Mumbrella cast. Um, yeah, of course. Look, coming off, coming off such a low base in 2020 will automatically skew the 21 and 22 numbers. Um, I think what will be really interesting is to have a look at the dollar values and what that really looks like when that data becomes available rather than just the percentages. Um, no doubt when you look at some of those numbers, just top line, if you know, you're know you down 20 and then you come back two sets of 10, you might just be on some sort of you know re- the recovery of, of where we are now. Um, I think the movements need, you know, the movements are correct um, and I think they'll happen because the market needs time to normalise. There's no doubt that ad spend um, in all areas, not just automotive, has, you know, moved in some way, shape or form this year. Um, It wasn't a normal year and I don't think the world goes back to a, a history. There's just a continuation of, you know, where we are now and where it ends up. So I find it frustrating when I hear a a new normal or going back to, you know, some sort of pre-COVID number. Um, It's just an iteration of of the world and future years won't be normal. You know, every industry has been affected really differently Um, and, you know, the constant of, you know, recessions and compromised economies is that they come and go and they peak and trough Um, and some industries right now are in a trough and some are already coming out um, and some will take even longer, you know, to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but the one thing is that they'll all get to the other end whenever that is, you know, recessions pass, uh, consumer sentiment, you know, changes and, you know, consumer spending habits will to, will as well. I think the key, um, the key insight in all of this is that brands need to understand that despite the tough economies, um, they really need to continue to, to invest in advertising and in marketing. You know, staying relevant, staying top of mind and in the consideration set, um, you know, that's the key to building brand equity, um, even in tough times, especially in tough times. Um, and unless you're not going to be around as a business um, or unless it is just not possible, um, brands need to be visible and they need to continue spending in some way, shape or form. So I really look forward to seeing, you know, when we, when Australia in particular comes out of this recession, um, the favourability of certain brands, um, especially in automotive, what that really looks like and those who have invested over this period I think will come out on top. There you have it, brands. Keep investing. Do it now. Now's the opportunity. <laughs> Diana DiCecco, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast and we hope to see you back in the industry very, very soon. Same. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it from us for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella 360 Reconnected streams online in just under three weeks' time. There's never been a more important time to put your tools down, step away from the day-to-day tasks and spend four days absorbing the latest wisdom, research study insights and inspirational tales from the industry's biggest global leaders. In a year unlike any other, this is your chance to set your business up for success in 2021 and beyond. Don't wait. Secure your team's group e-ticket now and pay just $69 per person. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 for more info. That's it from us for the week, though. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.